0: You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we are in the book of Revelation. We've been working our way through. We are actually at the halfway point now, chapter 11. So we are halfway through the book of Revelation, and we are also halfway through the time known as the tribulation in the book of Revelation, if you see what I mean. We're dealing with events at the midpoint of this final seven-year tribulation, and we're getting a very detailed look at a number of significant events. Revelation chapter 11, so we are nearing the culmination of this era of history, and this is a time that the prophets in the Bible have been speaking about for thousands of years. It's probably accurate, I can't actually exactly prove this, but it's generally assumed accurate that the prophets spend more time telling us about this final week of history than they did about the, the years that Jesus walked on the shores of Galilee and around Jerusalem. There is so much in the prophets about this final period of history that it is important that we understand it. It's a time of judgment, obviously. It's a time when the world has undergone a serious change in judgments. And there is this man, this world political figure that we've looked at, the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, popularly known as the Antichrist. We argued that he was basically Satan's messianic figure. As one thing you'll see, this is Satan's last hurrah. He tries to counterfeit as he always does. He wants to counterfeit God because he wants to put himself in the place of God. That was his first sin, remember? He wanted the worship that was due God. And that is why this pride, that is what happened. And now he seems to want to have his, his rule on the earth. He wants God's kingdom, but he wants him at the top of it. So he has his Messiah figure and he has his false prophet that we'll meet in a few chapters. And he also, him being the substitute for the father. It's a satanic trinity, you might argue like that. Last week, we looked at chapter 10. That was a transitional chapter. We saw this very unusual scene of the angel coming down, delivering a scroll to the Apostle John. And I argued that that scroll is something we've seen before in the Bible. It was, in fact, the scroll that Daniel was told to write by the same angel all those years ago. But at that time, Daniel was told to seal up the scroll. It wasn't for this time. It was for the time of the end. The angel then took that scroll. And now we are seeing the angel come and give that scroll to the Apostle John, who is told to reveal it to us. And this is what we have in the book of Revelation. So that's where we're up to. We're going to only do about six verses today because there's some pretty heavy stuff in some of these verses, a lot of background, but let's get into it. Revelation chapter 11. It says, Then there was given me a measuring rod, like a staff. And someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar, and those who worship in it. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. So, now at this point, we're so near the end, we do see really things start to shift and focus back towards Jerusalem. And this is kind of what we should expect. Jerusalem was the place where the revolution begun, if we could put it like that. This is where the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ happened, it's where the victory was won. This is where Salvation was really started and it went out from there to the rest, to the ends of the earth. So now we see as things are closing, we see things begin begin to focus back onto Jerusalem. And we'll see that particularly in this chapter. So John is given a measuring rod, a reed, it might say in your Bible. It's the same thing. It's also what it means, a measuring rod. And he's told to measure the temple compound. Now, the obvious and immediate question that comes from this is what temple? It's clearly speaking of a Jewish temple here. But if you know anything about the history, there has not been a temple in Jerusalem for pretty much 2,000 years now, since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Now, this is a very controversial point in the interpretation of the book of Revelation. Do you remember our introduction? We talked about why this book is so controversial. People have many different ways of interpreting it. And this is one area where you want, if you want to know someone's view of how they interpret Revelation, just jump to their view on the temple here, and you'll get a good, pretty good understanding of how they interpret this. Let me give you a few ways that people do this. Some take an interpretive approach called preterism. That means past. Preter is the word for past there. And basically what they say is that everything we're reading in the book of Revelation was fulfilled in the past, particularly in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. If you know, one of the most famous people who holds this view is R.C. Sproul. Brilliant thinker, a very good Christian philosopher in many ways, apologist, reformed theologian, but he is a partial preterist and he believes that most of Revelation, except the very end of it, is fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And to do that, they obviously argue that John here is simply describing the temple that was there, Herod's temple. And that means that they have to say that the book of Revelation was written, of course, before that temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So they date it at 65 AD. Now, of course, the problem with that is historically, both the overwhelming weight of internal and external evidence from the early church and all through is that Revelation was written in 95 AD during the Apostle John's exile on Patmos. So it couldn't have been talking about that temple. That's basically the, the answer to that. And it's a big issue there. Now, another approach is simply that this is a symbolic way to talk about the church because we're all familiar with the way that the church is referred to in the bible as a temple and that is definitely true let me give you an example 1 corinthians 16 verses 19 or do you not know that your body is a temple of the holy spirit who is in you whom you have from god and that you are not your own for you have been brought with a price therefore glorify god in your body there's many other examples where the church is called Living Stones in a holy temple being built up. This temple imagery is accurately a description of the church. So they come to this text and they they sort of spiritualize the, the details here and say that this is just a way of of describing the church. And they take they apply that to the whole of Revelation, really. Another approach called the historicist approach, they would look at Revelation and they say that it's not talking of a specific time in the future, It's actually just speaking broadly of the whole of the church age and these different things that we read are different events in the history of the church. So during like the 17th, 18th century, it was very popular to interpret things like obviously the the Pope and the Catholic church with seal judgments. They did the French revolution was also one of the seal judgments. The problem with this is every different era of history has a different set of events that they apply it to. So you can see that it's very hard to be consistent. This is one of the failings of the historicist approach. Now, again, it's true the church is described as a temple. However, that would mean there's no need for this physical temple. And in that sense, they are correct. But as I've been arguing through this book, this is not the church age that we're reading about in the time of Revelation. We argued at the beginning, the church is no longer here for this point. This is the outpouring of the wrath of God on a Christ-rejecting world. The bride has been taken at this point. And therefore, that argument doesn't really seem to fit. However, even if you don't subscribe to pre-tribulationism, the details of this text are enough to convince me that that is not really, this is not just a picture of the church here. Why would they, John, be asked to measure it if it was a symbolic of the church? What is the distinction of the altar and the temple if it's just a symbolic of the church? If it is symbolic of the church, who are the worshippers that he's told to take note of? and why is the outer court excluded, and also explain how the outer court is trampled upon by the Gentiles if it's symbolic of the church. There's just too many details in the text to be a symbolic picture of the church, and on that alone, I I, I kind of reject that view. Now, it's just simply, as as we've been arguing throughout this book, much better to just accept the text as written, even if Sounds a little odd to our ears and doesn't make sense. The text is the text, it's the inspired word of God, and we take it as written. It does seem to point that there will be a functioning temple of some sort in Israel during these final days. In fact, if you think about it, this should not shock us at all. There's pretty much always been a temple of some sort on this earth. Right since back from from when the tabernacle was given, then we had the temples, then we have the church, functioning as the temple, but when the church is gone, it shouldn't then surprise us that there is a functioning temple. We also have a picture of a future temple in the book of Ezekiel that is known as the millennium temple, which will be when Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning, there will be a temple. So this shouldn't really be a problem for us. Now, a lot of people say that it's just not talking about a proper temple because they'll look at the political situation today this area in Israel known as the Temple Mount. And they'll say, there's just no way because of the geopolitical situation, the deadlock between Islam and Judaism, that there can be a temple. There's no way. And people then try to speculate. Well, maybe there's a way that you could kind of have a, an agreement where Islam has half and and Judaism has half and, and they kind of share and they both have this different issue And people speculate it is just simply that speculation at that time. I'm not really interested in doing those speculations because The problem with that, as I've argued many times through this book, is what you're doing when you do that is you're looking at today's political situation, this age where the restrainer is still active, where things are very different. And then you're importing that into the tribulation period and thinking things are just going to be the same. By the time we get to this part of the text, things are not the same as we've seen. The man of sin is ruling on this earth cataclysmic judgments have already happened around the earth much of the earth is uninhabitable at this time and we're nearing towards this focus in jerusalem we don't know whether islam's still even on the scene whether it's a player who owns the temple mount we have to be careful when we teach it. one of the reasons people don't like studying revelation is because of the constant speculation that people have made over the years that when you pick up a commentary that was written 20 years ago It's some, some of the things are laughable because they're talking about things that people don't even know about today because they're so outdated in history. So I don't want to be speculative. I want to try and stick to the text here. And the text simply seems to imply that during this end period, there is a temple here. So that's another reason. And let me give you a positive argument for that. There seems to be many scriptures that imply this. We've just read one in the Revelation chapter 11. Do you remember when we studied Daniel chapter nine? that was talking about this final period of history, and it was talking about the, this man of sin, the man of lawlessness. it says that he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering when he commits this, this act of making himself God, basically, of deifying himself. It seems to, again, imply that there's somewhere for him to stop that. Jesus himself pointed towards this temple. Matthew 24, 15, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's an event associated with the temple, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. That comes from Christ's Olivet Discourse, this this teaching he gave about the last days. And we saw it again, the Apostle Paul mentions it when he's teaching about this future man of sin. He says, the man of lawlessness will be revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as God. So there's all these scriptural clues that do seem to point in the same direction, so it's much easier just to take them as they stand, even if we don't quite understand how that's going to happen. It seems pretty clear that there is enough scripture to to warrant the view that there is a temple. And let me just make one more argument for this. Perhaps the most common view that I've heard people dismiss this is that they will say something like this. These futurists are really just a product of 19th century beliefs, usually from a man called John Nelson Darby and the rise of the dispensational school of theology. And all of this is nonsense. It's so new and therefore we just reject it. And that's how it goes. A lot of critics of Christian Zionists or people who who take a futurist approach to revelation as we've been teaching are simply branded with this brush that it came from dispensationalism and no one really believed in a future temple because that's ridiculous. And that's how the argument goes. So in order to just to, to show you That is just really an unfounded attack. I want to read to you two passages. This is, first one is from a man named Irenaeus. He was writing in the second century, the second century. He says this, but when this Antichrist shall have devastated all things in the world, he will reign for three and six months, three and a half years, and sit in the temple at Jerusalem. And then the Lord will come from heaven in the clouds in the glory of the Father, sending this man and those who follow him into the lake of fire, but bringing in for the righteous the times of the kingdom. Now, doesn't that sound very, very similar to what I've been teaching you through Revelation? Almost identical, in fact, to what we are saying. This was from the second century. This is Hippolytus writing in 202 AD. This is from his commentary on the book of Daniel. It's the oldest commentary on the book of Daniel that we have in existence. He says, just as he spoke to Daniel, and he shall establish a covenant with the many for one week, referring to Daniel 70 weeks. And it will be that in the half of the week. So again, like us, he splits that week into two, three and a half years. It says, he shall take away my sacrifice and drink offering so that the one week may be shown as divided into two. And after the two witnesses, we're about to study them in Revelation, will have preached for three and a half years, the Antichrist will wage war against the saints. Second, well, just beginning of the third century there. Very, very similar to what I'm teaching you here. Almost identical and very different to actually to saying that there's just a symbolic view of the church and all these other views that are actually much newer than the view that I'm teaching you. So what we're saying here, this understanding that there was a temple, there will be a temple at this time, is very, very ancient. We're going right back to the early church and I would argue back to the apostles. So let's look at some of the details of this text. So back in Revelation 11 now, verse 2, it says, leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread under the foot, underfoot the holy city for forty-two months. So again, notice we're given a time period here, forty-two months. That's three and a half years, yes. And here, it's exactly the same as Hippolytus was saying 1900 years ago. And it says, The Gentiles are still trampling Jerusalem. And that is true. We just looked at that picture of the Temple Mount, holiest site in Judaism, where the temple once stood under the control of the Islamic uh, Waqf belief, the Jordanians. And even when Israel won that piece of territory back in the 67 war, they gave it back. So they did not have sovereignty over it. It's still being trampled down by the Gentiles. And we know that this will happen until the final days that Jesus comes back. Luke twenty-one twenty-four, Jesus said they will thrill by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And we're about to see what that really means. This is all about to come to a head in Jerusalem. The times of the Gentiles are going to see this ultimate man who's going to proclaim to be God sitting there. They are fulfilled when Jesus comes back and deals with them. This is what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians. So all these things are about to come to a head. Now let's read verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. And we'll spend all of our time in, in these verses today. He says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, And they will prophesy for twelve hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire." So now we have a shift. Again, Revelation, like I said, it's a serious book. We have a shift from this focus on the temple to two new characters in the book of Revelation. You you can really study Revelation by doing a character study of all these people that we meet throughout the book. We've seen some amazing ones already, haven't we? And now we're meeting two more. They are called the two witnesses. And notice it says in verse three that they prophesy. The nature of their ministry is prophetic. They are caught in sackcloth, and this is typical of Old Testament-style prophets. Sackcloth was a, something you would wear when you were mourning. The prophets would mourn because they were often preaching judgment against unrepentant Israel, usually at this time. And that is very similar to what is happening here. It's a message of repentance, obviously, but because there is a refusal to repent, it's a message of judgment too. And this is where the sackcloth and ashes ex- expressions often come from. Now, you might notice this theme that's developing. When Christ came to Israel 2,000 years ago, that first time, to offer the kingdom, the leaders of that nation ended up rejecting his offer and him as the messianic character, as the Messiah. And they did that on the grounds that he was a miracle worker, but he was doing his miracles by the power of Satan. And therefore, they led the entire nation in rejection of the Messiah. And judgment was set for that. That's what happened in 70 AD. There was always a remnant who followed and believed, people like the Apostle Paul and and these characters that we meet. Just like throughout the Old Testament, there was always a remnant who believed. But on a whole, the leaders led the nation to reject the Messiah. And Jesus then said, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those, and he says, I'll take it from this generation. I'm going to give it to another generation. You remember those texts? Now, what he's basically saying there is that just as the leaders led the nation in rejection of Messiah, one day the leaders will have to lead the nation in acceptance of Messiah. This is what the book of Revelation is leading us to, this final entrance. And when they do that, they will be ready to receive the kingdom. And that is what the end of the Revelation tells us. This is when the kingdom starts. So all of these things are are connected here. Now, we have these two Jewish prophets preaching in Jerusalem, with a Jewish temple in the final days before the Lord returns. You see the similarities here. It almost seems like they're being actually created to mirror the situation that was happening when the first rejection happened. But in this stage, we're going to see there's not another rejection. Eventually there is an acceptance here and the leaders do call out and petition the Lord to return once they are being, well, we'll see that the antichrist is trying to make sure that that doesn't happen as we go through this book, but the parallels here are very clear. Revelation might sound strange to our ears because. We haven't spent enough time in the Old Testament or even understanding the proper character of the Gospels. But these things are like a mirror, almost in reverse. The situation is being set up so that we can see the same thing happen. But this time it will happen with an acceptance of the Messiah. Now notice again, it says they will prophesy for 1260 days. Another time reference to this period. Just like we saw Hippolytus writing about in the 2nd century, 3rd century. We see it again here. In verse 2, 42 months. That's the three and a half year period. And now it's put in days, months, and days and years. It's almost like the writer, the Lord is trying to get across to us. This is a very important period of time. This middle point of the seven years, it's very important. You see it mentioned many, many times. It's half of Daniel's 70th week. Now, the big question for us here, looking at the two witnesses, and this is a much debated issue, is which half is it talking about? You split seven years in half, you get three and a half years. It's talking about the first half or the second half. And these are Interesting things. You can't be overly dogmatic, but I'm going to make a case that this is referring to the first half. The ministry of these witnesses are operational during the first half. These two prophets, these two witnesses, whoever they are, we'll talk about that in a moment, are tasked with a special ministry during the judgments of the tribulation. So we've already seen the seal judgments and most of the trumpet judgments. I think that fits better than arguing it's at the end of the three and a half years, because that would actually be the final end of the tribulation, that's actually when the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire and Christ returns, not the death of the two witnesses and things like that. So it makes more sense for me that that's already happened. So who are they? That's again, the big question. If you, if you have read commentaries on Revelation or are involved in, in eschatology, at all, you'll know that this is a massive, a massive issue. Now, those who simply, like I said, those views that don't take many of these things, particularly straight in the straightforward way, they again Just like they spiritualized the temple, they would spiritualize the the language of the two witnesses. Millions of different suggestions. Things like it's a a picture of the law and the prophets. So it's just prophetic of the word of God, the testimony. And, you know, they have a little bit of truth mixed in with some of this stuff, but it's just a way basically to escape the, the reality of what the text is saying. And again, whenever you see these views where there's hundreds of different options, be careful in making a very definite statement because it usually should tell you something maybe we're we're slightly amiss in the way we're trying to interpret this. Now, even amongst those who agree that we're talking of two literal prophets here, two individuals, there's still many, many options on the table that people have offered. The most common is Moses and Elijah. They're the most common people who are identified with this. Moses, Moses and Enoch sometimes, Elijah and John the Baptist sometimes, Peter and John sometimes. Throughout the history of the church, there's been many people. So again, That should make us, should raise some alarm bells, make us cautious in trying to be too definite. Now, for me, I do think the text is fairly clear. You're talking of two individuals here. And out of those above options, the strongest view would seem to be Moses and Elijah. And the reason people make that identification is because the supernatural abilities that they are said to have, turning the water to blood and and stopping the rain, are things that if you read the Old Testament, you'll find Elijah did, and also that Moses did, the plagues of Egypt. And that's really the strongest argument for where that comes from. Uh, A few other things, but there we go. Now, generally I did lean towards this view and I I still don't reject it out of hand. It's still a possibility, but actually as I've looked harder and harder at this text, it still seems to be slightly speculative to me because those acts are not necessarily the only Moses and Elijah. They're they're just supernatural acts of God that he can do through a prophet. It's not a hundred percent identification. I I think if it wanted the identification to be Moses and Elijah, it could have very clearly stated that because Elijah is talked about as many times in the Bible. So I'm not overly sold on that view. Instead, as I, as I look at this text, there is another thing that I want to draw out with you here. And remember how I said that revelation will make you a good theologian. Almost every verse in the book of Revelation is referring back to something in the Old Testament. This is referring back to something in the Old Testament. We've seen this almost in every study that we do. And this is what I want to look at here. The text actually itself gives us the details about these two witnesses. And the focus is not so much on their personal identification, which is where we always seem to want to focus. Who are they? Who are they? Who are they? That doesn't really, that's not really the point of the text. It's their role that is the focus of the text. And that is what the reference comes to. So we need to try and grasp the role of these two people. And to do that, we need to go back to the Old Testament. So let's just look at what the Revelation text says, verse four there. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So it's talking about the two witnesses. And it says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Now, of course, we just read that. Great. That's a, This seems like one of these cryptic expressions, doesn't it? That doesn't really help us at all. But we have to chase this down, like we do in the Old Testament. So turn with me, please, to Zechariah chapter four. Zechariah chapter four is a very Zechariah is a very interesting book. A series of visions that the prophet had that deal with the returning remnant to rebuild the temple after being in captivity, but also deals with the final days tribulation, and the return of Christ. Some of the most famous second coming passages come from the book of Zechariah. And this is fascinating. We're going to read the whole of chapter four because it is all about the reference that we've just read in Revelation. So remember, the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth, that that phrase is very crucial, but stand before the Lord of the earth. Let's read the whole of Zechariah's vision and hopefully you'll see what I'm getting at and we'll go through it a little bit. He said to me, starting just in the end of verse two, he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and beheld a lampstand, all of gold with its bowl on the top of it and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. And then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? And so the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Very famous verse. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Also the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house and his hands will finish it. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you for who has despised the day of small things. But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and throw throughout the earth. Hopefully you can start to see the seven eyes of the Lord that roam the earth, the measure, the plumb line, the measuring rod, the temple, top stone, all these themes as we've just are being repeated now. Verse 11. Then I said, what are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered the second time and said to him, what are the two olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes, which empty the golden oil from themselves? And so he answered me saying, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And then he said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Identical phrase to what we just read in Revelation, right? For the two witnesses. So this is your connection, obviously hundreds of years apart in the writing. The exact same language that we see here now in this series of visions that Zachariah is seeing, he's seeing these two lampstands and the picture that we described there is basically that they're being fed by the oil from the two olive trees and one of the things that oil is in the old Testament is a picture of the Holy spirit and that's why we anoint with oil. It's, it's symbolic of, of being anointed by the spirit. And that's why we have that very famous verse, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. These people are being empowered to do the ministry of the Lord by the spirit. That's the concept that's being described here in Zechariah. The word literally means sons of oil. In fact, the two witnesses here, the two anointed ones, it literally reads sons of oil. It's a very nice phrase when you think of it like that. So now, as we've seen in Zechariah, it is written to the returning remnant under Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest. That's the main original context but it also speaks in many ways about the final days of Jerusalem and the return of Christ gives us that wonderful description of, of actually Christ coming back and touching down on the Mount of Olives. So one of the great objects of Zechariah's vision was to encourage two particular leaders of the restored remnant in the task of rebuilding the temple. Okay. That's just one theme. I want you to notice these themes and therefore it is right in this sense to regard the initial understanding as representing Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel who was a royal descendant of the davidic line and this is very interesting so these in this context these two individuals are both a priest and a king and they are rebuilding the temple so this is you should hopefully start to see that the, the language of revelation coming through here and the vision of the future zechariah's two visions concerning the work of the Holy Spirit through two individuals during two different restorations. One was their restoration of the temple that we we read about in the Old Testament. The second one seems to be speaking of when Jesus Christ comes, which is obviously a future temple. Two anointed individuals in the first restoration, Zachariah and Joshua, the high priest, a royal descendant of David and a high priest. Okay. They were the two. Now this is very interesting for us because Zechariah, let me just read you one more verse from a different chapter. We have to do the time in Zechariah. I'm afraid to understand this. This is why we're going back. Zechariah looks forward in his prophecies to the time of a coming individual who will combine the office of prince and king, of, of priest and king. And we'll have a future temple in Jerusalem. Let me read it to you. Zechariah 6 verse 12. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold a man whose name is Branch. Now, if if you're familiar with the Old Testament, Branch is a common word for the Messiah. He will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. And listen to this. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be between these two officers. Now, we might just read over that and not realize that's not correct for the Old Testament. If you think that's just Old Testament, remember a priest could not be a king in the Old Testament. They were separated. But here, here, Zachariah is telling, one day there is going to come a high priest who is also a king, who will be called the branch, who will rule in Jerusalem from a temple. You see, you understand this, there is only one high priest who is a king. It's one who is after the order of Melchizedek. The whole book of Hebrews is written about him. Jesus Christ was a high priest and he was a king. He's our high priest who lives forever to make intercession for us. He is also the king of kings who will one day rule from Jerusalem. This is what he's talking about here. This is what we're getting at. So I'm hoping I can just draw some of these themes out to you a little bit more. So this is the branch. This is the Messiah. So that was the first group, obviously, Joshua and Zerubbabel and the rebuilding of the temple back then. And then you have this almost prophetic foreshadowing moving forward. So now we're in Revelation and we're reading about two witnesses who are described in exactly the same way as Zerubbabel and Joshua. They are two witnesses, two people who are having a specific ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the whole point of the olive trees, that they are empowering the the candlesticks and making it light. That is the whole point of what's going on here. So it's basically telling us the emphasis is not so much on trying to figure out who they are, but it's on what they're doing. They have a specific spirit anointed ministry at this time. And it's not just any ministry. It's a ministry that's connected with the coming of this one called the branch. Who will come and rule in Jerusalem and build a temple. And that's, that's our connection between Zachariah and Revelation there. And that is really what the two witnesses are about. It's leading us up to that final fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. When the one finally comes who will be a prince, priest, and a king at the same time and will never be taken off the throne and he will rule from Jerusalem. And thus we see that he will in fact have a millennial temple too. These are the things that are going on in Zechariah's prophecy. And that I believe is what Revelation is trying to get us to, to understand with these two witnesses. Their ministry at this time, as we near these final days of completion, is to have a return of the Israelites to acceptance of the Messiah. They will be preaching about the coming branch who will rule. This is their time. And obviously by doing that, they'll be preaching against this false religious system, the antichrist system that is happening at this time. They're not going to be much liked. So let's get back into Revelation and we'll just dig out a few more details on this text. Now verse 5, if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours it and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. So this tells us a little bit about their ministry. They have to have supernatural protection during their ministry, just like many of the prophets did in some ways. They are basically announcing that those who are following the beast, who are standing against Christ at this time, your time is very short. In less than three and a half years, Christ is coming. The king is coming and you won't be standing against him at that time. Of course, that would not be a popular message for the Antichrist religious system. He would have been a thorn in their side. These two men would have been constantly refuting everything he's saying it seems to be that they are in the center their ministry is operational in jerusalem and they are obviously hated by the world everyone hates them they're the public enemy number one at this point and this is what we see here and i would say as we're going to read next time uh, as we go through the rest of this chapter eventually the beast kills them and it's probably that act that allows the beast to then enter the temple and say i'm god Worship me." And people probably will, because they've seen these supernatural prophets protected by God for three and a half years. No one's had the power to shut them up or do anything. Then all of a sudden the beast does it, and the whole world worships the beast. You see, this is what we're, it's building to that crescendo that we have going on here. Now let's talk a little about the unusual element, fire from their mouth. You know, are we talking about like dragon men here? Well, this is what the picture seems to imply. People get very confused about that. I've seen very, very, very literal representations that they will literally be breathing fire from their mouth. I'm not sure if that's necessarily the point of the text. One of the things that we know, remember, these are Old Testament prophets in the character of Old Testament prophets. One of the things that is often talked about is that the words from their mouth are bringing judgment. Fire is always associated with judgment. And also a prophets like Elijah did through the words of their mouth, did have the ability to actually cool down fire from heaven. We see that a couple of times in the Old Testament. So that's more likely what I believe is actually getting, being stated here at this time. Whatever the case, they were supernaturally protected for the, for the three and a half years of their ministry. This is what's going on here. Now, this is all very similar again to the old Testament. Prophets, Jerusalem, temples, menorahs, olive trees, all these sorts of things is getting us back into that mindset because we are nearing the end of the time of the Gentiles here. So things are beginning to shift and focus. One of the the names for this period of history was the time of Jacob's trouble. Do you remember that name from Jeremiah? It is a time specifically that is preparing the nation of Israel to accept their Messiah. It says that Israel, even to this day now, is partially hardened. They don't see the Messiah because the gospel's gone out to the Gentiles. But now, once it has gone out to the Gentiles, it seems to be here that generally that hardness through the ministry of these things, 14400, 144,000, is being removed and the nation is slowly being prepared to accept their Messiah, which will lead to the coming kingdom. All of these things are, are just connected in the Bible. It's amazing, really, when you see how, how large the picture and the scope is that we have in the Bible, the generation of Jesus day, who rejected the kingdom. And now soon we're going to see this generation petition Jesus return and we'll see the kingdom set up and established. That is, for me, the emphasis here alone, I actually find all of these emphasis, again, another strong argument for pre-tribulationism, such a focus on these issues with no focus on the church at this point at all, because the church has I believe, fulfilled its mission and its purpose at this point. Let's look at the last verse that we'll look at today. These have the power to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. So again, we see that these abilities are very similar to some of the Old Testament prophecies. Like I said, Elijah had the ability to shut the rain. Remember, he did that a few in the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus makes reference to this. And look how he describes it. Luke four twenty-five. There are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over the land. Notice that time period again. Three years and six months, three and a half years. It's almost as if this three and a half year theme is put woven throughout the entire Bible under the surface. And now in Revelation, we're seeing it come to the end and we're seeing the final period of history. The two witnesses also seem to parallel the seal judgments in some way. Do you remember as we read and we went through all of these seals that were being broken, we saw drought, we saw the water turning to blood. We saw different plagues, different famines. i I believe this is one way. If you think about it like this, we know what's happening because we're reading revelation and we're seeing the lamb break the seals, aren't we? And we see what's happened on the earth. People on the earth are probably not aware of it like that. But they will be hearing the two witnesses prophesying and speaking and having the power to replicate some of these things in a small way. And this probably tells you why they're so hated. People are blaming them. Like people blame God for all the bad things in the world. People are blaming them at this time. And that's why in the next chapter we study the second half of this, when they're finally killed, you see that the world rejoices. They give gifts to one another. They thank you that they're dead. These two are finally dead. It shows you the heart of the world at this time. So bent on rebelling and rejecting Jesus Christ, that they would rejoice when his prophets are killed. And it's not a far stretch. You see, I can take you in parts of the world today where people rejoice when when people who name the name of Christ are killed. And that's in our age. Remember, this is a different age now, so it's going to be even worse. So this is, again, exactly what we should expect to see happening in a rebellious world, but this is nearing the end. Soon there will be no more time for things like that. Now, that's really where we are. They function like divine prophets for that period. They are witnessing to the Lord's work, that his judgments are coming, that the king is coming soon. The branch is coming soon and he will rule from Jerusalem. This is the restorative process in Israel in preparation for the kingdom. That, as I've said constantly throughout this study, that is what revelation is really preparing us for. Now let's think a moment about this concept of witness as we end, just tie this back to ourselves in this era. We are the lampstands. Do you remember in Revelation one, the church was described as seven lampstands. You remember that? And Jesus was walking in the midst of them. And then we saw the letters to the seven churches. Now, again, we're in that age, the church age, we are the lampstands. We are the ones who are supposed to reflect and shine forth the light of the gospel and shine forth the light of the Lord in this era. And we're supposed to do that. So those who are in darkness, as Jesus said, may see our good works and glorify our father in heaven. That's one purpose of the church. This is what it should be. We see this even fulfilled in the life of John the Baptist. Remember in John 1, 7, verse 8, he came to witness, to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him he was not the light. He came to testify about the light. And then when Jesus Christ was here, John 1, 9, there was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man, the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Yet Jesus is not with us on this earth in the same way like that anymore. And in his, his departure, while he is in heaven, awaiting his day to come back, he commissioned the church to be that light. That's our purpose. Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling and disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation, among whom you appear as lights in this world, and then very crucially holding fast the word of life. That's how we appear as lights in this world, holding fast the word of life, living according to the word of God, understanding the authority of the word of God, and yes, also doing it by the power of the spirit, like Zachariah. We like those two anointed sons of oil that we read about. That is our mission at this time. We want to shine forth the light of Jesus Christ. And I guess the question. When we're studying a text like this, that deals with this era of history that is maybe foreign to us in some ways, we can very definitely ask ourselves the question now in our age, how are we shining forth the light of Jesus Christ as individuals? Yes, but also as a church, do people look at us at the darkness and see that we are testifying to the light, something greater than ourselves, the light of the world, or do they look at us and is it barely indistinguishable from what they see in the world? And that's the question. I'm not going to answer it for us. We have to answer those questions ourselves. And I would really pray that we would be sons of oil in this age. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.